Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equip You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with us today is a return multiple, many times guest of this show, our friend and our brother in Christ, Owen Strayan. Owen, welcome back to the show, brother. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, it's great to talk with you. Uh, can you just catch us up on what's been going on in your life, marriage, and ministry? I think we had you on uh, last, uh, I think it was around the time, I think it was October with you mm. know your your book on manhood yeah thank you for the question wow since then the major development in my life is i got to go on a uk reformation tour uh affiliated with g3 ministries and my wife got to go with me so that was a huge blessing and uh over here in arkansas where i teach at uh, a small seminary called grace bible theological seminary we're starting a new seminary, uh, new seminary. We're starting a new seminary on top of the, the existing one. No, we're starting a new semester, new semester. And I am teaching uh, doctrine of revelation, not the, the book, but uh, the Bible and scripture and general revelation and all that good stuff. Uh, and also, lastly, I continue to be the assistant coach of my son's homeschool basketball team, 12-year-old basketball team. And uh, we have been having a very good season and I've been having a lot of fun with my my boy, and so it's been a good it's been a good time. I'm very thankful. There's there's lots of challenges in life that we all face, but the grace of God is real and operative in my life, and I'm just uh, a debtor to God's mercy and grace, and I'm very thankful. Amen, brother. Well, it's not only a new seminary; it's also the strip mall seminary, right? It is. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, that, man. That's our that's our uh, marketing advantage. There, they say find find what you have that no one else has. So uh, we we said, hey, let's just uh, maximize the strip mallness of everything. Um, in truth, for anyone who comes here, they'll say it's not a strip mall seminary at all. It's actually a beautiful building, a multi million dollar building in in central Arkansas in a college town. But hey, if they want to call it a strip mall seminary and help us recruit guys who are going to be drawn. Uh, to uh, to that kind of ethos where you know we're not we're not in seminary to make ourselves great we're in seminary to make Jesus great hey by all means keep going that way <laughs> for sure for sure you know you have this uh, great new book out it's called the warrior savior a theology of the work of Christ uh, here's the here's the book guys man what a what a stunning cover I know we were talking about that before uh, we recorded can you tell us a little bit about this book and how you hope it'll be received brother. Sure. Thank you for the kind words about it. Uh, and I had nothing to do with the cover except to ask PR publishers, the ones who have come out with the book, uh, that the that the cover have kind of an aesthetic element to it. I, I have done that before with some of my books. Um, my prior book with uh, Christian Focus Mentor, uh, their academic line, uh, Reenchanting Humanity, um, they, there was a cover design for that, uh, specially created um, in that pipeline. And uh, I loved that. And I've had many uh, comments about that cover, Reenchanting Humanities cover, that's a doctrine of anthropology from 2019. And with uh, with a book on the cross of Christ, I was like, this is another epic theme. I mean, this is this is it. This is a centerpiece of history. Uh, Jesus dying in our place uh, to uh, satisfy the wrath of the Father and expiate us and cleanse the guilty. 
and then uh, rise from the grave three days later. So I, I, I prayed for a cover that, you know, would, would fit that epic sweep. And indeed it came through that way. And uh, I'm, I'm just grateful for it. And this book, the warrior savior is now out as of uh, January, 2024. It's been a six year process, basically rounding up slightly and uh, just an absolute avalanche of work. But I am so thankful to the Lord uh, for those aforementioned daily mercies that got us to this point. Now the book is out and uh, I pray it helps people in some small way. Well, as you, as you worked on this book, were there like things in your own like theological development that you were like, that really stood out that you took away from as you were working on it? Great question. Absolutely. Um, you know, you hear talk about the cross as a display of God's holiness and God's love, but sometimes what can happen in reform circles uh, is that those two facets of the cross, which are absolutely biblically sound, um, do not necessarily receive equal attention. And so sometimes we almost end up talking about the cross as if it's not really that um, emblematic of God's love. And what emerged to me over the course of this project, literally several years of write, of researching and writing, I taught a PhD class at my prior seminary, Midwestern Seminary, on the atonement. So there was a lot that went into this, uh, again, five and a half years in the, in the making. But what came through when by the time I finally was writing and then editing the book was the love of God, the love of God. Um, you think about um, a text like 1 John 4, um, 7 to 11, I had it up and then I had to reset things here. Um, but 1 John 4 is, is the famous passage that says that God is love. And what I pray Reformed Christians get from this book and Bible-loving Christians is um, really a, a very, very strong dose of the love of God. Because I think a lot of Christians out there, I hear this commonly, Dave, I don't know if you hear it, uh, I lack assurance. I struggle with assurance. I've got a battle with assurance. And what I've come to realize is this. Obviously, some of the time when someone says that, there's a sin struggle, right? Uh, we're all battling sin. We're all battling the flesh daily, be very much included. We all stumble in many ways, James 3, 2. So that's real. But I've realized there's another big group of people out there, and their assurance struggle isn't so much one terrible blazing pattern of sin that is destroying everything in their in their life right now. They just don't hear very much about God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, God's kindness, God's tender mercies. So anyway, in a passage like 1 John 4, uh, 9 and 10, we read this just to, just to give you a quick sense of what was uh, burning a hole in my heart as I was writing. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction, that is, for our sins. Dave, here's what I would say, and I'll close down this little answer. <laughs> when you hear that last verse referenced uh, by reform types, um, sometimes it's in the context of like a battle over um, free will versus God's sovereignty and salvation. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And it's actually true. It's very much true that uh, the sovereignty of God is um, awash in this verse. I mean, it's it, it's just clear as crystal that we don't love God and thereby get saved. God loves us and saves us. But if we're not careful, we can toughen up the love of God so that 
it's primarily about arguments over sovereignty. And we're not actually talking about divine affection. And we're not talking, by the way, about our experience of God's love. That almost sounds like you're about to slip very quickly into antinomianism or man-centeredness or being a squishy Christian like all the squishy churches out there that talk about love, 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 and never talk about holiness. I am not in any way saying we should only preach and teach the love of God, but the cross is said here, is defined here as the sign of God's love. So that comes out and developed more in writing the book. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, and then we know what First John was written for. It gives us, you know, these acid tests, these tests that we can test ourselves to see, okay, you say you believe the love of God. How is that being worked out in your life? You know, sure. and John is very, very deeply concerned with that. So above and beyond, you know, what you said, which is really good. I mean, there's that. I mean, mm -hmm. and so John is giving us these tests to show, okay, you want to have assurance? Here's how you have assurance. Put, right. it into, put it into practice, you know, put it what you believe into practice. You believe the love of God in Christ. So how are you doing at that? Yeah, you do have to put it into practice, but I think we can almost get there a little quickly. Um, I want to linger on um, the love of God in this book and in general, just in life. In this, the love of God, verse 9, was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. In this is love, verse 10, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. Absolutely, John goes on, verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We, we, can't, we can't cut these things off. You can't only preach one message and then not preach the other. But I guess we've got to linger on this because I think a lot of Christians struggle. I'm talking about the Christians who do read their Bible. I'm talking about the Christians who do serve their church. I'm talking about the Christians who are seeking to be zealous for, for godly works, who are repenting of their sin and confessing it. I'm saying those people come up to me at conferences and churches when I get to speak somewhere, and they tell me they're struggling with assurance. And, and people around me who I know to be godly people are saying, I struggle with assurance. And I'm like, you're not the one who is living, you know, a, a really worldly life. You're not perfect like me. And I think it's because we just don't, we don't sit by the fire and look into the fire of God's love for a long time and think, God loves me. And God doesn't love me because I'm holy. God has made me holy because of his love. God has set his affection upon me. That affection isn't ever going to go away. Um, God's love isn't dependent on me. It's dependent on God. And so just meditating on some of those truths has been really rich. Yeah, that is that is good. I, I do think you're right, though, that we do need to stop and we need to think and we need to marvel at at this glorious reality of what, you know, Christ has done. And, you know, when, you know, when we talk to people that are struggling with assurance, of course, like you said earlier, we do want to talk, okay, what's, what's, what's your struggle with sin look like, you know? Sure. But then we get back that to, do we get away from that? Then we can talk to them about how are you doing at looking to Christ, you know, in the word and, and all of those things. And, uh, then we can dive into and ask some more questions, of course, taking a biblical counseling approach and just just kind of diving in and, and figuring out, hey, OK, so what is that? What is the issue? And I'd like I think what you're you're right, you know, just meditating on that, taking those texts and just chewing on them, thinking over them again and again and again. I mean, this helps with we know with anxiety, with discouragement and and all these other things that uh 
I mean, who doesn't raise your hand if you don't struggle with any of those things or, or fear or whatever? I mean, if you didn't raise your hand, uh, guess what? Uh, I raised my hand. So, um, <laughs> you know, you, you can raise your hand too. Okay. You can raise your hand too. Yeah. Oh, it raised his hand too. For those of you that are listening. Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that's actually huge for anxiety. That's huge for despair. That's huge for depression. Um, what is any sound biblical counselor going to say? Well, okay. Well, let's talk about some rhythms of holiness. Let's talk about disciplines of grace, right? Let's talk about your Bible intake. Let's talk about a meaningful prayer life, repenting of sin, serving church, being faithful to be in the ministry of the church, uh, congregational worship. We got lots of things to say, right? And they're all vital. But what I want to do, even as I've thought more about this and now publish this book, The Warrior Savior, uh, is I want to I want to make sure in any counseling session um, that I pour out God's love in this session. I want this person to understand. Let's th- let's say we're talking to a Christian as best we can perceive it. They are deeply loved by God, and they are not loved by God because of their performance. And their performance is not ultimately going to keep them a Christian. It's ultimately the love of God, the forgiving love of God, the persevering covenant love of God that is going to keep them a Christian. And I think that can help to take some of the white-knuckled grip off of things in our life. Sometimes we can actually so focus on trying to overcome sin in our own strength or through application of the law that, again, the love of God is this big. It's very small. It's tiny. And and we're almost, as, as conservative Christians, like giving somebody a little beaker of love. There's one drop. That's all you get. Now, I want to talk to you about killing sin. And, and you've, again, you've got to do both, but you've got to make sure that grace really is powering your system of theology. And I, I'll be honest, Dave, personal word here. I've seen how I've had to round this out in my theology. I can talk a big game about God's grace, but then not live in grace myself, not give grace to others who wrong me, mercy to others, and and also not even think graciously about myself. I can feel if I don't have devotions for a day or two, like I'm, I'm losing my purchase on salvation. I, I'm not enfranchising, drifting from the word. We, we, we don't want to do that. We want to repent of that. But on the other hand, wow, my salvation can almost become about me and my performance and not a great God and his love. Or it can become about, hey, how many books did I sell? How many art, how many people read my article? How many people listen to my podcast? How how how's the church so if you're a pastor, how how's the church doing based on the, you know, the 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 amount of people that are responding to your message? How many people came up to you and encouraged you? How how many yeah. people emailed me in, you know, in the congregation? How many people are giving? And it's just mm-hmm. a we just know that that's an endless um hamster wheel and you can just keep going and going and going and going and going and at some point you're just going to end up you know which i have done three times burning out Mm. it's not recommended but a lot of it is what you're talking about it's just going on this hamster wheel over and over and over and it's just like when is it going to stop it has to stop and and jesus invites us to abide in him right in john 15 um you know, how, how how are you going to do that if you don't meditate on the love of God that in Christ himself? Um, That's exactly right. Love creates shalom. Um, it tends to be only kind of the quirkier types out there in the Christian world who talk about shalom. There's no good reason behind that. 
uh, Reformed or Bible-loving Christians, conservative Christians should talk a lot about shalom. Shalom is comprehensive and holistic healing, peace, rest in Jesus. You think about Matthew 11, 28 to 30, typically becomes uh, a text. Again, we, we tend to do this, Dave, where um, we battle it out over, are you a Sabbatarian? Are you not a Sabbatarian? Or what's your view of rest? Or then what's your view of the promised land? And let's just fight. Christians are so quick to fight. Instead of first, we've got discussions to have about lots of things, <laughs> but instead of first marinating in, wait a minute, pause, pause the Sabbatarian discussion. Good discussion to have. Jesus is offering his people now rest, holistic rest, peace. Jesus is offering shalom. And um, and that's that's news that is good news to you. And that means that now your faith is not centered in your performance. Your daily walk matters greatly. You're to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But even that is anchored in God's grace and love and mercy. And when you fail, God forgives you. And that's where the horsepower is for holiness. It's not seeing your sin fundamentally. Uh, it's not fearing the world. The horsepower for holiness is supposed to be the great lavish affection of God. But I think a lot of people out there, sociologically, Dave, I don't think a lot of people have experienced love. I think a lot of people out there in terms of their their day-to-day -day life, their past, their background, whether father and mother, whether in marriage, whether friends, whether being bullied, uh, or, or much worse than what I've just named, a lot of people have actually had a kind of thimble full of love poured into their life and they don't really know how to deal with soaring divine affection found in the cross of Christ that never runs dry. And so when they approach God and God the Father, they tend to think of his love as small. And that tends to then be a small practical reality for them because love is a small practical reality in their life with people. But that's where God reframes all of this. And it's so wonderful and freeing. Do you think, I mean, we, we would, we would both certainly be for, you know, theological nuance and, and precision in our approach to writing, preaching, teaching and everything. But do you think that even that can, can kind of, um, even, even something like as good as that, which we would both affirm and, and our audience would as well. Do you think even that can get in the way sometimes of, you know, the, we, we would say the indicative and the imperative, and we don't linger so much on the indicative. Mm -hmm. um, and we and we quickly want to say, oh, this is what Christ did. And so this is what you're to do in light of what Christ commands, you know? Um, do, do you think that's a, that, that's a real concern? Um, it, it's a good thing to focus on the indicative and how it fuels the imperative. Uh, we should do that. Otherwise, you get the gospel wrong, you know, and then, then you can't have, you know, that. But do you think that that kind of um, – Thinking maybe in 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 Bible teachers, pastors, it, it bleeds down into the pew to the average Christian. And and what would you say about that? Yeah, roughly eighteen thousand percent. That's true. Would be my answer. Um, I am all for imperatives. I am all. I mean, if there's a if there's a New Testament imperative, because we're in the era of the New Covenant, we're not under Moses. We're under Christ. Second Corinthians three and five. I've got to obey it. There's not like, we're not like, I'm not preaching a message of half obedience or quarter obedience here or something like that, right? Neither are you. I mean, we, we, if, if Christ and his apostles, if the New Testament authors have taught it 
It is to be obeyed. It is to be obeyed without question and without blinking and without hesitation. And, and so we are to draw upon all the super horsepower of the cross and the resurrection in our everyday life in order that we would obey Christ, in order that we would live out the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not only about missionaries going to foreign places. The Great Commission, of course, is about obeying everything Christ and his apostles teach, uh, observing all of it, not just some of it. So, that's non-negotiable. Like, if you don't have what I just said, in some form, I, I put it in my own spin there, but if you don't have obedience, you don't have the gospel. However, the best approach to obedience is a richly God-centered, grace-powered vision of obedience that is not grounded in me making myself lovable, but is grounded in God loving me when there was no reason to love me. I have given God exactly zero reasons to love me. And yet, from eternity past, God the Father set his affection on me in the person of his Son and has brought that to perfect completion by his Spirit now in my actual life. And so, when I start with that chain of divine causation, I'm in much, much richer territory for obedience. I can walk up to some child at a park and, and shout, obey. And and maybe I'm saying something sound. Maybe they should obey. Don't run into the street. Well, maybe they shouldn't run into the street, right? That's a sound thing I'm saying. They should obey it. But what if then, what if I could backload in there all sorts of affection and love and 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 kindness and tenderness and gentleness and mercy and then give them the call? That would just be a much richer experience. I fear, though, that a fair number of Christians out there might almost think of biblical Christianity as the first. Obey! And, and so the pulpit is about how to obey. The pulpit is not only about that. It is about that. But it is first about giving, picture, giving people excuse me, a grace-saturated vision of God. That, that's not a waste of time. That's not impractical. That's not, yeah, yeah, pastor, okay, whatever, love, grace, mercy, stuff. No, pay attention to that. And what I see in some circles in, in the reform world, Dave, is we almost are really cranked up as preachers when it comes to the imperatives, when it comes to how bad the world is, when it comes to the evil of sin, and we almost skate over love, grace, mercy, tenderness, kindness, gentleness, goodness, et cetera, and so on. And that is just, that's not like a minor problem, Dave. That's a big imbalance. It really is. Do you think that perhaps that, you know, we have overreacted from the emerging church and even the influence of theological liberalism and on, on this particular topic? And so maybe we've, we've just got out of balance on, on that and, and, and rightly being against those kind of things. What, what would you say about that? Absolutely, we have. It is so easy to overcorrect. It's so easy to get upset at something that is worth getting upset about, but overdo it. It's one of the most common human experiences this is. Every father and mother out there knows that. Every husband and wife knows that. Your, your spouse does something that, you know, ticks you off, understandably. We're not talking about some horrific thing, but, you know, it's just a little, one of those little things of everyday life. And what do you do? Do you react in a balanced and measured way in your everyday life? 
No, so much of the conflict we have and we have to die to and work through and overcome by God's sanctifying grace over the long haul is actually a lot of the little stuff, right? But even in the little stuff, don't we see how quickly we overcorrect, overreact, freak out? Do we stay calm and measured and balanced? And do we bring things down or do we ramp things up? Well, we do the exact same thing in formal theology, in church and ministry debates, in, in seeing real bad tendencies, let's say, in the evangelical world. Okay, this church um, has crazy, wild, unhinged worship. Well, we're going to make our worship so throttled down, no one's even going to enjoy it because we're, we're not having all that wild affection and emotion. You know what we're going to do? We're going to drain worship of emotion such that we sing uh, basically in a whisper. You can't even hear the instruments, but we're not doing what they're doing. And we're going to then pat ourselves on the back and think we're doing worship rightly. We're not, it's not a podcast about <laughs> biblical worship, but um, I think that tendency is very real. I see it in my own heart. I see, you know, you hear some false teacher talking about love, um, you know, just waxing eloquent, but, but unsoundly. And you're like, that's not the gospel. The gospel's about wrath. And if you're not careful, you can easily overcorrect. It's not that we seed love. It's not that we give away love to the squishy types, to the liberals. They talk about love. We talk about wrath. It's that we talk about the whole counsel of God. We don't pick and choose, but we we seek as much as we can to be faithful to scripture, sorry, and talk a lot about God's love, always also unfolding that the wicked will face eternal judgment for their sin, and it, which which only makes the good news even, even more powerful. Yeah. But yes, so, we overcorrect. Sorry. No, I interrupted you. Sorry about that. Do you think that a lot of this this discussion, this this uh, issue, goes back to maybe a neglect of the Old Testament, and and even further, how does a good understanding of the Old Testament help us understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament? No, oh, man. Let's just do let's just do a running podcast here for like eight hours. These are such rich themes to talk about. I I think that it is absolutely criminal that we're not we're not hearing about the Old Testament. We're not hearing it preached in so many pulpits. It shocks me. I'm talking about conservative evangelical pulpits. I'm talking about reform pulpits because um you you think about let me just talk apologetics for a minute. And I'll jump back. You think about the massive uh, hit that Dawkins and others put out on God uh, 20 years ago with the new atheism. What was the target of the new atheists? It was the Old Testament God in their language. There's one God. There's one immutable God taught in the Bible, though there is progressive revelation such that we learn uh, the, the Trinity in full flower in the New Testament. Nonetheless, Dawkins and others argued that the Old Testament God is pestilential and evil and bloodthirsty and a tyrant, basically. And that has even been picked up in evangelical circles by the new Marcion himself, Andy Stanley. And so you've, you've got this argument in, in secular circles from new atheists, who are now old, by the way, and new atheism is dead, RIP. But you've now got this argument very much made in Christian circles by a Christian preacher way, way, way more famous than than anything I have ever approached, way more influential than me. And, and so he's making a, a Christian version of this secular argument that you should unhitch your faith 
from the Old Testament scriptures. And the reason he's basically arguing that is the morality and the law codes, but also the vision of God the Old Testament gives us. Now, here is what I am trying to say in this book that we are discussing the warrior savior. I have six chapters on atonement in the Old Testament. Uh, basically, my book is a whole Bible doctrine of the atonement. I, I, I do what's called biblical theology. I go whole Bible, not just New Testament. I don't go to logic. I don't go to the philosophers to ask what they think about atonement first and foremost. I don't go to the logicians. I, I, I don't go to church history even first and foremost to figure out what atonement is. I do something somewhat radical today. I go to the Bible and I start in the Old Testament. And here is the glorious discovery you make when you go to the Old Testament uh, to understand God and to understand atonement. It is not at all the case that the God you find there is a bad God. Instead of that, contra Dawkins and his cronies and contra Stanley, it is a glorious, forgiving, and loving God. This is the God who promises the warrior savior in Genesis 3.15, just about as soon as the fall has happened, there's a warrior deliverer announced who will crush the head of the serpent. What is that? That's the first early word about the atonement. That's it. And then you see a God who goes on to set up a system of atonement for his people, for example, in the Levitical system. Quick word here, Dave. How many Christians are ever going to hear a sermon from the book of Leviticus? Many churches out there are never going to, yeah, never going to preach Leviticus, even conservative churches. In fact, preachers will make jokes about Leviticus and say something like, huh, it's not like I'm preaching a message to you from Leviticus, so you better stay awake today. Well, here's the amazing thing. There is, <laughs> I want to be careful with my language. There's almost no more glorious material in the Bible than it, that is found in the book of Leviticus. Yes, there are, there are some portions that challenge you. Definitely there are. They're challenging passages to read and they kind of push your categories. But then there's absolute gold that you find. For example, the leper is cleansed. I talk about this at length in this book, Leviticus 14. Lepers get cleansed. Lepers are the worst of the worst. They're in a terrible condition. Their flesh is rotting. They're dying. They're experiencing living death is what, what they lived in. And yet they're pronounced clean through atonement. And that culminates, I, I'm, I've got a lot on the table here. I need to bring this too close. That culminates in the day of atonement where there is a bull sacrificed and then there is the scapegoat sent into the wilderness. And those two animals um, represent the coming work of Jesus. Jesus slain for us, who in his dying effectively takes all our sin and buries it beyond where anyone could ever find. So if you cut out the Old Testament and if you mute it, even unintentionally in your pulpit, you leave your people without major access to the tender mercies and everlasting covenant love of God. You may not mean that at all, but that's what they will end up missing. And your, your young people will be susceptible to those kind of terrible arguments from whether a Dawkins or a Stanley, inside or outside the church. And they'll think, oh, the Old Testament God isn't good. When the Old Testament God is the very opposite of that, the Old Testament God is incredibly good. That's really good, brother. Really good. Well, you know, how important is it for Christians to understand the high priestly ministry of Jesus? And, and how does that understanding, you know, help the Christian? Jesus is the high priest who makes the one 
perfect sacrifice for our sin, as the book of Hebrews makes clear. You think of the end of Hebrews 7, for example. So that is a very different understanding of the priestly ministry of Jesus than you find, for example, in Roman in, in Roman Catholicism, excuse me, where uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross is represented on a weekly basis in the Mass or even a daily basis in the Mass. And there is no such uh, doctrine taught in the actual Bible. The Bible does not teach that you need uh, an ongoing propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus. The Bible teaches that when Jesus laid down his life for us at Calvary, that's the one perfect sacrifice for sin. So that means that Jesus, the high priest, um, brings to an end the system of atonement. Jesus, the high priest, brings to an end the sacrificial system. Jesus, the high priest, means that there is no other priest needed to stand between you and God. And that means then that when you and I sin, we don't look to our own efforts to re-justify us. And talking about what we were earlier discussing, Dave, honestly, functionally, that's how a lot of Christians think about their daily walk. They might not mean to negate or deny the cross. But when they sin, a lot of us out there who have legalistic tendencies, fundamentalistic tendencies, we will think to ourselves, ah, okay, I, ha I had a bad moment there with my family member, my spouse, I looked at something I shouldn't have seen, uh, bad conversation, whatever it may be. Okay, uh, all right, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to re-justify myself. I'm going to go do some good works. Uh, I'm going to uh, read my Bible for 20 minutes longer. Uh, I'm going to go serve the church really, really hard or whatever it may be. And the truth is, what you're supposed to do when you sin is not first and foremost, do something yourself. You're supposed to look back to the cross. You, you're not helping Jesus atone for your sin. You're not helping God justify you. All you do is you look back and you remember the one perfect sacrifice. And you remember that God has saved you and God has made you his child. And then yes, out of the overflow of that, you say, God has loved me so greatly, how can I not now seek to love him and how I live? And so all of that pushes you back up the hill to strive for holiness, but not in your own strength and, and not out of an, a sense of gloom or misery or despair or internal hatred. I hate myself because of the law. No, because God loves you. So the high priestly ministry of Christ is what grounds you living a healthy, joyful Christian life. Mm. That is really well said, brother. Where can people go to find out more about you and your podcast and your and your writing, brother? That's kind. Uh, I have a podcast called Grace and Truth, Grace and Truth with Owen Strand. It's on Spotify and Apple and platforms like those. Um, that's with Salem Media. I just started that in uh, October 2023. I uh, had a prior podcast called The Antithesis. Before that, it was called City of God. And so now it's called Grace and Truth. So very much encourage people to find that if they want to and subscribe. Subscribing, as you well know, Dave, is a huge deal and a big help. So please, everybody subscribe to this podcast by Dave Jenkins. And uh, my book is out there. Here's the best place to go to get The Warrior Savior. It's on the PNR website. So if you Google uh, listening to this, The Warrior Savior PNR, The Warrior Savior PNR, you'll be taken to the the book publishers page, Presbyterian and Reform publishers page, and there's a code you can use right now, um, uh, G3Owen, I think it is, or Owen G3. You can find it on my Twitter uh, if you Google my name and Twitter and uh, the code's there, pinned. 
That's awesome, brother. That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to encourage people to go to the PNR website. There you're going to find Owen's book, and you'll also find a lot of great, uh, great books. One of the series that I really recommend from them is the 31 Day Devotional Series. It is a fantastic series for, you know, biblical counselors or just, just anybody struggling with anything in addition to this book. So, uh, mm -hmm. guys, the book is The Warrior Savior, A Theology of the Work of Christ. Here's the here's the book if you're watching the video. Uh, brother, thank you so much for your time and the great work that you're continuing to do for God's glory there um, at the seminary and for the church uh, all, all across uh, the, the country. And uh, I, you speak all around the world. So uh, thank you for all that you do, brother. Thank you, Dave. You're very kind. I'm just an unprofitable servant, but Christ is a great Savior. So thank you for having me back. Amen, brother. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, at Servants of Grace, on Instagram, at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.